Now we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, and we looked last time at chapter 5, the first two verses. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 5. By the grace of God this evening, even though we will start again at verse 1. Romans chapter 5. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word. Romans 5 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you will remember that these first opening chapters of the book of Romans help us to understand what it means that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. That's absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. It's foundational for our understanding of our Christian living. We emphasize that this morning in the preaching of 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And when we come to this fifth chapter, we find that what the Apostle Paul now is doing is saying, okay, now we understand this truth, let's begin to apply it in various ways to our lives, and there is this stress upon assurance of faith. And so we looked last week at these first two verses of chapter 5, in which we saw that we have peace with God, we have access, and we have hope. Now that word hope is going to come up again, but we have peace with God, access, and we have Hope. We reach forward into the future by this hope that is granted to us by grace. But we would be wrong to think that this has no effect upon our present living. Quite the contrary. So Paul applies this to life's struggles here and now. When we come to verse 3, we find that he begins by helping us to see something about tribulations. The word that is used there in the Greek New Testament is flipsis, and it means pressure. Now, who of us can't identify with that? Uh, whether it's the, the, the serious sort of pressure that can come from death, uh, where, whether it is that or whether it is the ordinary everyday pressures of life that we experience in a fallen world, the Apostle Paul is going to help us how to understand that our feet are established upon the rock of Christ And this is how God is working in the lives of justified, accepted sinners who have access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me begin with an illustration. A.T. Robertson is a person that you hear me reference from time to time. It's because he was one of the greatest scholars of the Greek New Testament that ever lived. He was a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And here's this man who wrote a massive tome of about 1,500 pages on Greek grammar. 
Very interesting fellow with all kinds of interesting teaching methods. That's for another time. But here's this man who has been teaching the Greek New Testament all these years, and his daughter Charlotte, if I remember correctly, who was 16, a splendid, splendid young Christian girl, suddenly died. And those who came to the home of Professor Robertson said that they saw him walking around the house with his Greek New Testament, reading the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he was saying out loud, the Lord raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? Now this is a man who was undergoing flipsis, tribulation, real trouble. And he was a man that was struggling. We would say he was struggling with his faith. I think that even though that might be true, it's perhaps better to say he was struggling to understand hope. But he struggled with a Bible in his hand. That's the important thing. He didn't struggle as someone who is out there in the world who is hopeless. But he was going to the text. He was reading about the raising of Jairus' daughter. And he struggled to understand and to apply to his life hope. So we come to this text and we find, first of all, that the Apostle Paul says we boast in tribulations. In verse 3, he says, more than that, we suffer, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and then he goes on. We rejoice, or the word could be translated, I think better, we boast in our sufferings. The same word that we find in verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. So he continues this theme of exultant joy, this boasting in the cross and in what Christ has done. But does it surprise you in what Paul boasts? The text is very plain. He says that we boast in tribulations. And this is surprising because it is so totally foreign to our fallen way of thinking. And as believers, we are influenced by the world. What is typical of our society when it comes to how we think about tribulation and trial? Well, you owe it to yourself to avoid trouble at all costs. You deserve a trouble-free life. That's how we think. I'm an empty cup. Fill me up. This kind of therapeutic living. And we're saturated with it. And much that goes by the name of Christian counseling, I think, is really somewhat of this approach. There's very little awareness of sin. In the London Times, there was an article once that asked readers, what is the greatest problem in the world? And George MacDonald wrote in reply, I am sincerely George MacDonald. (laughs) Now this is a far cry from the kind of therapy that the world offers. And when there is this kind of awareness of sin, there can be also a deepening awareness of grace. And I was thinking about this actually just this afternoon, and I want you to try and understand it. That the deeper your understanding of God's Word, the deeper your understanding of the Bible, the deeper your understanding of theology and truth, the deeper your communion with God, the deeper the, deeper the tribulation hurts. Does that make sense to you? Because you understand something of the fallenness of this world. 
the reason for Christ coming into the world. We actually enter into his sufferings as Paul teaches in other places. But also the deeper the deeper is the sense of grace. The deeper is the healing. So the wise Christian will be aware of this. <clears throat> Remember what Jesus said in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. And so certainly it is false teaching to say, if you believe in Christ, you'll have no trouble. Indeed, the troubles sometimes are deeper in this world as we look to the world to come. The second thing I think we should see, though, as we move on, is that there are two things to note about Paul's perspective. Two things to note about Paul's perspective. And the first is, for the Christian, suffering is the very point at which our future hope is demonstrated. Let me repeat that. For the Christian, suffering is the very point at which our future hope is demonstrated. One commentator on Romans, his name is Anders Nygren, says, suffering receives a new meaning. It becomes the means in God's hands to carry us on to consummation. Now, I wonder if you think about trouble like that. The trouble that we are enduring is actually what God is using to carry us all the way to the consummation at the end of the age. Uh, It is the very thing that he's using to carry us all the way to our heavenly home. That's what trouble is. That's Paul's perspective. This is the controlling perspective of Paul and of the New Testament. Paul does not teach Stoicism. He's saying that our union with Christ transforms suffering for the believer, and our sufferings are actually the means of moving us on to our future that God has planned for for us, for you, and for me. The second thing I think that we note about Paul's perspective is, look how edifying Paul's perspective is on trouble. How edifying For Paul, tribulations are for Christ's sake. They are for God's glory. They are occasions for God to show His strength in our weakness. Occasions for the power and grace of God to show through. They promote the Christian's ultimate welfare and for the good of the church. And they develop Christian graces. And that's what he emphasizes here. That trouble is used of God to develop in your heart and mind Christian graces. So we tend to be joyless and commiserate and want to be pitied. Paul gloried in his tribulations. And I want to be more like that. I've not yet arrived. Uh, But not only do we glory in the future, certain hope, but we glory in the present. Because he's already told us in verse 2, through him you've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's now, right now, that we do so. Why? Because for the Christian, the future has penetrated the present, and therefore the present is transformed. In Acts 5.41, you remember the apostles as they suffer? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, how many of us being beaten with rods, uh, held in prison, would leave rejoicing? 
2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He can speak of his own sufferings as light and momentary. And his sufferings, as you know from reading the New Testament, were deep and great, weren't they? They were light and momentary only because he's comparing them with what is to come in its great weightiness. Now that's boasting. That's what it means to boast. Exulting in tribulation. It doesn't mean smiling all the time, but it means seeing God in it and glorifying God through it. And so sometimes Christians are reluctant to comfort one another in trouble by saying, your father is in this, but let me tell you, that is exactly what we need to tell one another, and that is exactly what I know I need to hear when I'm in trouble. He's accomplishing something. He's doing something. Now, what is God accomplishing? Well, he gives us some specifics, and we see this is the third thing. What does God do for us through tribulation? And we see that he works perseverance in our lives. Let's look again at verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance, if you will. Now, there's a word. (laughs) Tribulation produces endurance or perseverance. It means to be constant. It means to be steadfast no matter what comes. God uses tribulation to grow us up, to make us steadfast, to put steel in our backbones, to keep us from being theological wimps, unable to live with conviction, but to face what comes to God's glory. Now follow the chain. Through tribulation, God works character. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance, and endurance produces character. Character, the word means approvedness. We could maybe coin a word and say it means triedness. It means to be proven by testing. Turn with me, keep your finger here, but turn to 1 Peter, the first chapter. Because here you see something very similar in this glorious passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. As the Apostle Peter says, beginning at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ... According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here's this glory that awaits us. And then he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice Though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the same idea. And Peter says, the tribulation is like gold being tested in the fire. How is gold purified? It is put into the crucible. It must go through the fire. How is your faith demonstrated as true? How is it strengthened? How do you move on to that heavenly home? You move on through the fire. What is God doing in my life? What what is this trouble for? What is this tribulation about? It hurts. He's putting me through the fire. And yes, it's hard, but learn to rejoice because... Because Paul tells you what God is up to. 
Make, make this plain as you read. Uh, he's telling us exactly what God's up to. He's building your character, your Christian character, the grace of a Christian character. And character that is produced by trials also leads to something else we read in verse 4. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That great word, hope. Now, what does this mean, this word hope? So this is the fourth thing. What does hope mean? What does hope mean? Well, hope, to put it simply, is a certain hold on the future. A certain hold on the future. A believer has hope. This means that he can project himself into the future. That's why biblically you see my, my sermon title tonight is, uh, is redundant. A certain hope, because all hope biblically is certain. Believers can go through trouble because hope is not focused on immediate gratification, but is anchored in the future promise that God has given to you and to me. Again, Nigren says, if there were no suffering, hope would never have opportunity to attain its full strength. Now, fifthly, there are two things that we learn about hope here in this passage. First of all, we learn the glorious truth that hope is founded in God's love. Because he says in verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope that God gives us is as irreversible as His love. The hope that is given us is as irreversible as His love. And when he uses the word poor, I think that's significant because it's the opposite of God's wrath. It's His love poured out upon us, not His wrath. And it also references the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How sufficient and constant is God's love? So we can ask, what is the basis of God's acceptance of us? And we can answer, it is the sacrifice of Christ. But we may never ask, what is the basis of God's love? Because He loves you, because He loves you, because He loves you. It simply is nature. So hope is founded in God's love. And when you're going through trials and struggles and tribulations, that hope is as certain, as irreversible as is God's love for you. And then also we learn about hope, that hope is God's gift through the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the author of our certain future, our hope, and the guarantee of its fruition. Let's look at a couple of passages in Paul. In 2 Corinthians, and I'm just going to read them uh, without comment or much of a comment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Notice how the future and the Holy Spirit are related. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, Paul says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee. Um, in chapter 5 of this book, 2 Corinthians, verse 5, 
He says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Or if you will, turn to Ephesians, the first chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, and remember that Ephesians 1 is Trinitarian in structure. And when we come to verse 14 of Ephesians 1, maybe we should read 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And so our hope is rendered certain because certainty and assurance is not something that we work up, but it is God's gift to us. And because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when you go through suffering and tribulation, God furthers that sense and realization of hope Because the Spirit of God is the absolute guarantee that that hope, that hope is a hope to which you will arrive. Now you might remember that I've illustrated this before, maybe a long while back, in a a way that at least is interesting to me. You remember how the book of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Maybe you should have it in front of you. Turn to Hebrews 11.1 so that you see the words for yourselves. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, It is It is um, being sure, being certain. And scholars were long uncertain about what this word being sure means. That is to say it was a a word in Greek vocabulary that was was difficult for them to to trace. And then, of course, there was the discovery of the non-literary papyri. You know, bits of paper, fragments, uh, letters, and so forth business documents, which actually help us to understand the language of the Greek New Testament. And they found that the word used in Hebrews occurs in a long legal document called the Petition to Dionysia. And she was a widow who had some trouble about her property, and uh, there were some lawsuits that she had to deal with, and she wrote out a copy of the judgment delivered in a previous lawsuit, and a full statement of her claim was sent with it to the prefect of Egypt. And in this document, the word found in 11.1 of Hebrews is used, and the papyrologists tell us that it was a technical legal word. What did it mean? Well, when someone bought land, there would be papers involved, and there would be Uh, a registration of those papers, the owner of the land, bills of sale, correspondence about it, and so forth. And those things would um, would be housed in the local archives. And there was in every great city an archive. And so when an issue would come up, uh, you would go to the archive and you could settle the legal dispute by looking at the documents. Well, this is one of those words that would have been found in legal documents, and it means title deed. (laughs) It means title deed, folks. 
All right? So do you see? When in the New Testament we, we see that we have a hope? Hebrews 11.1, 1, illustrative of what we've read in Romans 5, means things hoped for are not seen, but are guaranteed by God. Through the Holy Spirit's work, I have faith, and I hold the title deed to the land that God has promised me. So say you go to a real estate agent and you buy some property in Mexico. You've had no opportunity to see the property, but the realtor puts the papers, the title deed in your hand, and if you want to sell the land, you present the paper, which is the equivalent for the land. Well, the Holy Spirit is your guarantee. You have the title deed to the future. Your present is hard. It's flipsis. It's pressure. But no one can take from you the certain hope guaranteed through the Holy Spirit who indwells you because you own the title deed to the property. And what is the property? Well, once again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so never separate your life, your circumstance, your pilgrimage from the ultimate future praise that is yours now. You hold the title, the hope that will never, never, never disappoint. We're back here in Romans, the fifth chapter. The Apostle Paul uh, puts it this way. He says, and hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so I've tried to put myself into the shoes of Professor Robertson. And he's lost, he's lost his, his lovely splendid daughter. And he's walking around the house with his Greek New Testament reading about the raising of Jairus' daughter. That's trouble. That's flipsis. That's tribulation. And he cries out, he raised, he raised Jairus' daughter. Why not mine? But he had a Bible in his hand. And where does that Bible lead Professor Robertson? It leads to this. This trouble is working character. It is producing such an evidence of your hope that as you see the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, you're pointed to a greater raising from the dead, the true resurrection, Jesus Christ your Lord. And then that points you to your hope that is certain because Jesus is the one who will come again 
and who will raise the dead in the last day. And I am sure, I wasn't there, but I I just am sure that Professor Robertson turned to 1 Corinthians 15 and he read the end of the chapter. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so, what I want to encourage us to do is this. To understand that in the midst of trouble and tribulation, God really is doing something. And so walk around in your trouble with your Bible in your hand. Believing it when it tells you that you have a hope. That means it's certain that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God who guarantees it. And begin to live now. Let us begin to live now. In view of, in light of, in the fullness of that future hope that is promised to you and to me who trust in Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.